Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. How's everyone doing today? Fuck. It's, I'm a, doing. it's a big month. I was going to say day, but it's a big month. Welcome to our series. Oh, yeah, that's true. Confronting Kemper. Confronting Kemper. Episode one. We wrapped out last week with some listener tales, so mm-hmm. please keep sending those in. We enjoy those. We love those. That was so much we'll fun. We'll do that more often. I mean, we'll do that as we get enough tales in to yeah. this episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, good, it's a good episode for us to give you a break or me a break from these murderous psychopaths that we love to cover. Especially after this month. <laughs> this month's going to be a big one because, like you said, it's literally all of November is Confronting Kemper. It's a whole series you're doing. Yep. Uh, There's a lot to cover. The layout is pretty awesome how you're doing it. Thank and you. I'm excited for it because I think I said it last time, but I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. I swear to crap, mm-hmm. outside of like the scientific community, I swear to you are like one of the world's foremost experts on Ed Kemper. I'm not even saying that joking. It, it's funny because I wanted one like cohesive place for, <laughs> I mean, not, not for educational purposes, but like for somebody to come to, to learn all they want to about this guy and about the victims, you know of what I course. mean? Of course, we always like to cover and, the victims. And, you know, about the, you know, the the launch of the behavioral sciences yep. unit and the FBI. And, I mean, this is, this is a big case. That's truly why you became, as I call you, like one of the biggest experts on this dude is because that all that is what launched your intrigue into him. Piqued my interest. Because you always wanted to get into criminal profiling and stuff when you were little. That's the true crime you always... We're drawn to that. And this dude is literally patient well, zero. As hu- yeah, absolutely. For I behavioral think, studies in the criminal profiling. You know, as FBI. humans, we want to know the why. How could right. and it's it's good that we don't understand him. <laughs> let me let me add that. But He's but hard to it's so it, it really we want to try, you know. So And he tried to help us because this fucking dude talked, man. Yeah, he taught and you know, he hasn't applied for his life. He's still alive. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. He hasn't applied for his last, I want to say, six parole. He was up for parole several times, and he's like, no, I need to be in here. He also knows, one, there's something wrong with him in some way, shape, or form. Like, there's something evil with him or something wrong. He knows that he can't. But maybe yeah, he and we'll knows get into that all that, but yeah. Yeah, maybe he knows that if he goes back out, he's killing again. Oh, he for sure. He also knows he probably deserves to be there. He does. Because I've heard a lot of his interviews, like, obviously yeah. being around you all the time. And he does deserve to be there. He knows it. Yeah. He's, that's the thing that's crazy about this dude. He's not, like, off the rails- He's not insane. Psychotic. We're, we're not going to say he's insane. He's not insane. He's, he's very... Super intelligent. He's and, an evil genius. And coherent, too. Like, coherent yeah, absolutely. Or he's with it. He knows what's going on. Yeah. I don't want to take too much away because, you know, obviously... You're no, absolutely. But um, it's my birthday month, so to celebrate... <laughs> I'm gonna do celebrating with the Kemper. Woo! I'm doing a, a Courtney style deep dive into a highly requested serial killer, and actually the first person to ever be labeled a serial killer, Pat. Yeah, he was uh, Edmund Kemper the Third, also known as the Coed Killer. He had some other names. I think it was the the Coed Butcher, and you know. Fucking Sasquatch. Yeah, they give him. They, <laughs> yeah, they give him lots of names. He's like six foot nine, three hundred pounds. Or exactly. Like so, guys, if there ever was a monster that lived, it would be Ed Kemper. At the age of just fifteen, he committed his first double homicide. Mm-hmm. Then this looming giant of a man, standing at like Pat said, six foot nine and weighing in at a whopping two hundred and ninety pounds. It's a big fucking human being. Went on an eleven-month killing spree targeting young college students in California. 
And I hate to say this, but Ed, or Big Ed, as he was lovingly known by his many cop drinking buddies, has become a pop culture icon, which we always hate to see. In 1973, after Ed was tried for his numerous sadistic murders, his menacing height and placid demeanor really caught the attention of everybody. How could it not? To include producers and writers in Hollywood, of course. It was Ed Kemper that was the inspiration behind the ever-famous Michael Myers of the Halloween franchise beginning in 1978. Mm Mm-hmm followed shortly by Jason Voorhees of the Friday the 13th franchise that began in 1980. And that one even makes more sense. Yeah. They both have that, like, quiet, lurking, tall, they're huge. Monstrous physique. Like Kemper, Michael and Jason were monstrous, towering killers. And some would argue that Kemper's deep-seated issues with his domineering mother, I can call it mommy issues. Yeah also added to the character development. And if you're not into horror, maybe you have seen Edmund Kemper portrayed in my personal favorite series, the Netflix series Mindhunter, which gives us a dramatized look into the birth of the FBI's behavioral sciences division. Yep. That whole first season is about him, basically. Yep. And it's- our whole last episode, we will that's what our focus will be. Really? For the most part, yeah. Okay. There's a lot to dive into there. So... What is it that makes Ed so different from other serial killers we have covered? Other than the fact, like Patrick said, that he has a higher IQ than 99% of the population. He's an evil genius. Well, Ed liked to talk. In fact, he couldn't shut up. After his capture, he was an open book, and he would go on to provide really invaluable knowledge into the mind of a serial offender. So later in the series, we will dive into his numerous conversations with the FBI's first, very first criminal profilers. One reason I've been shying away from deep dives to this extent on killers such as Kemper is because I would never want anyone to think that I'm glorifying these monsters by any means. However, I do have a few goals with this series that I just want to make clear in, in our first episode. One is for you and I to break Kemper, break Kemper apart piece by piece, much like criminal profilers have done over the years, and try to come up with a why. Not only why he did the horrendous things that he did, but could it have been prevented? Is there a way that our justice system could have done things differently so that the lives of six college students could have been spared? Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we've seen that time and time again, especially with serial killers in the 70s and early 80s. You see that. It's obviously a very overly common theme. It is, unfortunately. My second goal with this series, and arguably my most important, is to devote the majority of at least one episode, if not the entirety, to his victims. Sadly, everyone knows Kemper in some capacity. However, until I started diving into this, I can honestly and regrettably say that I did not know the names of his victims. I honestly can sit here and tell you I don't know one name. I don't know anything more than the fact that he killed six college students Mm -hmm. and the other two people he killed I know. Yeah. That's it. And that's something that we as true crime podcasters need to change for the true crime community. These victims deserve the time and effort of us taking a look into their lives and honoring who they were while mourning the life they could have had. They absolutely deserve to be remembered as much, if not more, than the monsters that took their life. Took their life or that robbed them of whatever they did to them. 
My next goal is to devote a good amount of time looking into, like I was telling Patrick, the mind of Kemper, which we are able to do thanks to his thousands of hours of interviews that are readily available. I've read them. I've listened to them. I've read four books. I know. I know you have. (laughs) This is why I entitled the series Confronting Kemper. Much like FBI criminal profilers confronted this evil genius, I want us to do the same together. In educating ourselves, maybe we will be able to determine if we, as a society, can do more to prevent the rearing of these serial offenders. As always, there will be triggers galore in this series. I will do my very best to warn you before I dive into a sensitive subject. However, please be prepared in this particular episode for animal abuse, child abuse, um, sexual abuse, and probably a few other triggers as well, like knowing murder. him. <laughs> murder. murder. Yeah. yeah. So without further ado, let us begin part one of Confronting Kemper, Facing the Evil. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Let's do it. I'm saying I've wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old, and I'm not proud of that. It started with surrogates at a non-human level. Physical objects, my possessions, other people's, destruction of things that are cared about. And then it's destruction of things that are living on a lower level, small animals, uh, insects, animals, and then finally people. It started coming to a head again, so I went back down, I ran away back down there. And then a month later, I'm up living with my grandparents in the mountains, and 10 months later, I murdered them. Thank you, Ed, for that. (laughs) Appreciate that. Lovely human being he is. Creepy as hell. Always an open book, though. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. I've heard that before, and I've heard some of his other stuff that you've listened to. He's just, he really doesn't care. He's just like, let me tell you what's up. He's just going to be completely honest, very cut him, and dry. So just like, like, he literally was, says shit like, I wanted to kill him, so I did. Like, but like, he talks about Lord. it just like, hey, I went to the grocery store, and I picked up milk, Yeah, eggs. that's what I was about to say. Like He talks to, he talks so frankly about it and so bluntly. It's literally like you and I talking about what you did that day at you know, when you went to the store, or what I did at work that day, or it's what crazy. you did when you were picking up one of the kids, or you know what I mean? Or how the fuck do you talk about it like that? Well, let's see if we can figure out how he talks about it like that. Well, if we do, we're going to be rich. Let's go. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18th, 1948, in Burbank, California. And we're just going to refer to him as Ed from here on out. It's a lot easier than how he's known. that way. I mentioned before how huge of a man Ed was or is as an adult, and make no mistake, he was also a huge baby, weighing in at 13 pounds when he was born. Something tells me he was huge his entire life. Oh, he was, absolutely. His mom and dad were also very tall people. His father, Edmund Kemper II, was six foot eight, and his mother, Clarnell Stage Kemper, was six foot. She was a tall lady. So they were destined to have some NBA baller babies. (laughs) Offensive linemen, it sounds more like. But they got Ed instead. (laughs) Edmund did have two sisters. One sister, Susan, was six years older than him. And they were not very close from what I gathered. That's an understatement. I'm sure they weren't close as he got older. However, two years after Ed was born, his youngest sister, I think her name is pronounced Allen. It's A-L-L-Y-N. Allen? Allen? Looks like Allen. Allen. She came along. And Allen and Ed actually would later grow to be very close, even to this day. Yes, he's still alive, as we said before, which I had no idea. Um, We're going to hear a lot more about Alan later on in the series. She still comes and visits him in prison. 
I really want to hone in right now on Ed's mom and dad because we have done enough of these episodes, Patrick, to know that the early home life and family dynamics of a serial offender is where it all begins. Certainly, if not the cause, it's a mm-hmm. it's an influence for sure. That's for sure. And as I said before, we want to confront every aspect of him. So let's start with the parents. Ed's mom and dad were literally oil and water. His dad was a World War II Special Forces combat veteran. Shit, okay. And he famously stated regarding being married to Clarnell, and I quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with I her. Remember, I remember reading that somewhere. <laughs> I was like, damn. Like, legit being around atomic bomb testing was better than being married to this woman. That's Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to crochet that on a pillow, bitch, and give it to me for our anniversary. <laughs> that may sound harsh, however. <laughs> I went on numerous missions where they said, you're probably going to die. And that was easier than coming home to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. It may sound harsh coming from him, but... It was very apparent that Clarnell was super domineering and just an unloving person, especially to her only son. Ed's mother and father were hot and cold, and sadly, his dad was gone more than he was around, not just because of his job, but because he and Clarnell just couldn't get along. Now, one would think that with an absent father, Clarnell would want to shower her kids with extra love. However, that was just not in her nature. One book I used heavily for this episode, this episode especially, is called Ed Kemper, Conversations with a Killer by Derry Matera. Okay. And he states that, quote, as a heavy drinker, Clarnell rolled through what some would describe as a meandering, never satisfied death march through life. So she just sounds Jeez. like a super pleasant woman to me. She sounds like a real fucking cupcake. <laughs> cupcake. Good lord. <laughs> A never-ending what? <laughs> Described as a meandering, never-satisfied death march through life. <laughs> I'm using that for something from now on. Good Not me. Lord. Oh, my God. That's my life with the kids. <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> I'm kidding. Rough day. <laughs> oh, yeah, a little bit. Clarnell began to target Ed viciously. And we will see Clarnell very openly targets men in general, especially her son, since he's even more defenseless. The more defenseless, the weaker, the better. And if you're not a weak man, she'll make sure you're going to get there She's at some make point. You a weak man. Yeah. She'll break you down. Ed was banished to sleep in the family's basement, and some would call it a cellar. Some would say that it wasn't even a basement; it was more like a cellar. Now, some basements are actually decent. In fact, Pat, you and I have stayed in a few cool basements when we've gone to visit family, especially up north. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. However, this is not that. (laughs) So to give you an idea, you had to access uh, the Kemper's windowless dark basement by moving their family kitchen table because it stood over the trap door that unlocked from the outside. So the door was on the floor. If someone doesn't move the table, you're stuck. Once the door was open, you would have to switch on a single tiny hanging light bulb before being able to make your way down a few steep stairs. Once inside, you could find a small sleeping bag where a little Ed would sleep amongst all the exposed pipes. There was an ominous old furnace in the corner that uh, an eight-year-old Ed would stare into for hours. Ed recalled later that he would spend hours staring into the, quote, fires of hell. 
and admitted to making bargains with the devil during this time. On the rare occasion that Ed's father was home, he did try to stick up for his son and put an end to the basement banishment. However, as soon as he left, Clarnell would inevitably handle Ed however she saw fit. Well, yeah, if he's not there, she, what the fuck is she going to do? Exactly. So why was young Ed banished to the basement in the first place? Well, Clarnell would defend her decision by saying that she sensed that her son displayed unnatural tendencies and she was fearful that he would rape his sisters. No one can know for sure if this is true or not, but Clarnell had claimed that she had noticed something very off about Ed starting at the age of just 18 months old. It seems that, yeah, it seems that she had kind of just made her mind up about her son just from then on out, yeah, probably what, even before what is then. off about an 18-month-old? I would think it would be very difficult to tell, you know? I'm not, I'm not going to look at an 18-month-old kid and be like, oh, that kid's off. He's going to rape his sisters. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't see that. But what we do know, though, is that Ed would later say in an interview, and I quote, I wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old. Yeah, you heard that audio. I'm not proud of that. Yes, and you heard that audio at the beginning of this. Which... Obviously, something is off if he wants to kill his mom at eight. At the same time, she makes him sleep in a sleeping bag in the basement. I think, yeah, absolutely. That was why we were going to see more, though. But that also loses that there's something awful on him if he's already thinking about that that young. How sick Ed was prior to that is just, it's not known. As I said before, when Ed's dad was around, he tried with Ed. He really did. And according to author Derry Matera, when dad was around, there was a clear-cut war of the sexes in the Kemper household. His dad bonded with him by teaching him little Ed hand-to-hand combat. And Ed loved to sit for hours and listen to all of his dad's war stories. And he ogled all of his father's medals that he had earned while serving. Well, sure. Dad's special forces military in World War II. Like, this dude is a legit hero. Yeah. And he's a badass. Because as a kid, even... Just Grown adults and see more. special forces people or Navy SEALs are like, oh my God, they're badasses. And I can see why there's a clear-cut war of the sexes almost is because he knows that what his wife does to men and does to him, I guess you could yeah. say. And then he's, he's seeing it being done to his little boy that he's never really around to stop. So he's yeah. going to take up like a, a hard stance in the middle there. And his relationship with his son enraged Clarnell. She would complain that her then-husband was devoting way too much time to Ed and argued that since Ed was a boy, he needed to be disciplined to the utter extreme because in her eyes, boys are after the girls. So it's almost like her worst fear and how she treated him became who he was. You know what I mean? As an adult. You can't tell me, like you said in the beginning, you cannot tell me this is almost like an identical match to Jason Voorhees. Yeah, absolutely. You know well, what that's I mean? where that's why I said you know someone argued that that Ed this Ed story assisted in Jason's well, character it does, development. Obviously, but you, I'm just like yeah, that, it's so spot on of the oh, domineering sure. mother that just was controlled every aspect of what he did and turned him actually turned him into the monster. As we are seeing, and as we will see more down the road, Clarnell has an issue with males, and this makes me wonder if she herself was a victim of abuse by a male authority figure at some point in her life, to be honest. I'm not, I'm not excusing her behavior as a mother, but it would be so interesting to know where this came from. It's also, it's, it's a very interesting to poke at, and I want to poke at it for a second because 
this is the 1940s, 1950s at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's very much still a male-driven society, right? Absolutely. Very women, second-class, subservient. Right. She's one of those women that doesn't have to be because, you know, most of the time in those days, and obviously I wasn't around, but from what we know about a lot of those days, it was also driven by, like, just your sheer physical ability and size, right? Yeah. and she was A lot a, of women were... Woman. You know, she was still a woman. abused, beaten, and mm-hmm. that's how they were controlled. That right. was the power, was the physicality, the physical size. She's one of those women that most men can't fucking tell her no, like do that shit with her because she's their size or bigger. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe that contributes with her, the way she deals with men even more because she feels like she's empowered enough to stand up or control it. Or I don't know. Maybe I just think that's an odd. I, I just wonder if she was five foot one and a, a meek woman. What it would be. Would yeah. it have been the same way? Well, uh, I think later on in this episode, we'll have um, some professional insight into Clarnell a little I bit I just more. gave us professional insight. What are you talking about here? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Dr. Pat. <laughs> uh, duh. Anyways, Clarnell's very open and outward hatred of Ed isn't something that we need to take his word for. Because I know sometimes it's hard to take, you know, serial killer's word well, for. Well, that's his story of how yeah. his childhood was. Ed's younger sister, Alan, would later speak about her mother's relationship or lack thereof with her brother. Alan and Susan would actually be rewarded for tormenting their brother. During one instance, longing to get a reward from their mother, Susan and Alan ran and tattled to her, claiming that Ed, who at this time was in the second grade, had a crush on his teacher. Very normal. But apparently, Ed claimed that he wanted to kiss the woman. However, in order to do that, he would have to kill her first. I mean, that's a little... That's a little off. In some sources, not all of them, I read that um, Ed also stopped the teacher outside her window. Can I can't confirm that that was... Because it it wasn't in all the sources. But he for sure said this. And we are talking about a second grader. Yeah. So I, I don't know how... Either way, it's concerning. Yeah, obviously the whole thing is concerning, but stalking her at second grade, I don't know, maybe, who knows. In 1958, when Ed was nine, his father had finally had enough, and he left permanently. He just felt like he was fighting a losing battle against Clarnell, and and he was. The couple divorced officially in 1961, and Ed went to live with his mother in Butte, Montana. His father remained in California. As soon as the divorce was final in 61, when Ed was just 13, Clarnell remarried very briefly. Like, very briefly. And was like, whoa! <laughs> the couple split after just 18 months together. Yep, dude got scared and ran the fuck away from that one. Clarnell had felt that she had once again, quote, married beneath her, Ed would say. So Ed is a teenager now, and the older he got, the more he started to look just like his dad. Like, just like his I'm dad. I'm sure that fucking pisses her off. And this upset his mother greatly because he was a constant reminder of her failed marriage. According to mental health professional Dr. Christine Ann Larson, an author who wrote Understanding the Borderline Mother and who studied the Kemper family extensively, she said that, quote, Clarnell was a classic case of borderline personality disorder. Makes sense. To put it simply, she demonstrated extreme, often violent mood swings, severe dissociative symptoms, and might have been related to an abusive upbringing of her own, and it was also fueled by alcohol. So Clarnell was an alcoholic as well. I forgot to mention that, okay. which makes everything worse when, you're, when you already have some underlying. Yeah. 
It's really hard for us to speculate since we aren't mental health professionals, of course, and we don't know Clarnell personally. However, it does add up, at least to me, that Clarnell was the victim of abuse herself at some point to some degree, most likely from an authoritative male figure. It could have been. I mean, it could have been her dad. It could have been a teacher. It could have been something. Yeah. It's, she definitely f- checks the box for borderline personality. Not disorder. excusing her behavior. No, but she definitely does also check the box for borderline. Like I said, just want to know the why. We don't know it is. Yeah, and in turn, she projects a dominance over her weaker male son to assert herself. Perhaps I mean, it, this is all very speculative. One hundred percent, it could, but that make that it is very speculative, but it it is very linear in the fact that it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. that she becomes that domineering over weaker men. Again, and ha- not excusing. And has all these things, yeah, this, this, these issues, these mental issues with it from being abused or in her from past. an authoritarian figure, which could just be any parental parental figure, uncle teacher, whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you know, definitely not excusing her behavior because no. she was just evil incarnate. She was abusing her damn child. But, you know, I, I do. That's what we're doing in this series. We're trying to understand why, right? That's what we always try to do. We always try to understand. We've talked about it from probably episode one on, you know, nature versus nurture is one of the huge topics we always cover with these people because to your point, were they born this way? Were they created? Or were they molded this way or was it a combination of both whatever the cause with ed's dad out of the picture ed was left alone with his mother without anyone on his side Fuck. he missed his father terribly and he kind of began to romanticize his father in a way and we kind of see this behavior commonly among children with an absentee parent figure especially when they're left in an abusive environment they always tend to romanticize the other parents and he probably there. all of his memories were probably of his dad when he would be home he would be sticking up for ed yeah he'd be telling him war stories so to him he's this great stuff. well we'll see an ed quote here coming up but yeah in his eye in his eyes he's this bigger than life figure and things you know? were better when his dad was around because his dad stuck up for him so he's going to romanticize it we even see evidence of this when ed was an adult Ed would later go on to speak about how much his father reminded him of John Wayne, the Western movie star. There you go. Ed would tell author Margaret Cheney that, quote, by the way, a lot of Ed quotes because he talked a lot, quote, John Wayne was very much like my father, both physically and in his behavior. My father was a big guy who spoke loudly. Like John Wayne, he had very small feet. When I first went to Los Angeles... I immediately went to put my feet in the footprints of John Wayne, which are immortalized in front of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. I was proud to see that my feet were bigger than his, end quote. Well, no shit. You're six foot nine. John Wayne was not. (laughs) Outside of his home life, Ed, I don't know if you'll be surprised about this or not, but he was a jovial, talkative, social kid. He was said to kind of have a very self-deprecating sense of humor, outside of the home or went alone with his younger sister, Alan, when she wasn't being used as a pawn in her mother's head games. This is quite surprising to me since we don't see too many sick and twisted serial killers have good personalities early on, but he very much did and really did up until the end. There's a few that we covered that did. He was, he was a, you know, a character. He was like a jolly green giant. Especially you know? to their siblings. There's yeah. a few that we've covered and that we've talked about and we haven't talked about that. They were when they were kids to their siblings. However, despite his very likable outward charm, there was definitely a darkness brewing beneath the surface. Obviously, this is evil pudding. Let's take a look together at some of the very bright and numerous red flags that Ed displayed as a child 
before you start feeling too terribly sorry for him and his abusive childhood. Good. That's I mean, I, saw, I feel like we always say we feel sorry for the child, not the adult. Feel bad for the child because they can't control their their environments. I do feel I do not feel bad for the adult that becomes what they become. Later on, as an adult, Ed would be asked about his behavior as a young child. A lot, if not all, of the following statements would later be corroborated by his sister. So we can be sure that most of what he claims is at least somewhere in the vicinity of the truth. Okay. As we will see with everything I'm about to speak about, there are very clear catalysts and, of course, escalations, as we always see with these guys and Ed's disturbing oh, they behavior. they all escalate. It starts small and escalates to murder. All of which Ed is extremely open about, oddly open about. I mean, he was, even in that short little clip you, you played in the beginning, he talks about it. He's like, it went from very this to this, yeah. you know, to objects, to people, to animals, to people. So Ed speaks about a time when he was very young that sticks out in his mind while being interviewed for a French TV show. He told the interviewer that when he was young, about eight or nine, he went to this record store and they had this crowd of kids there because there was a magic show. The magician had a fake guillotine and you know the guillotine is right where they lower oh, the blades it and it would cut a hand off or a head. Well, right? it's a it was a French execution device used right. highly in the French Revolution. So the magician had a fake guillotine and he demonstrated to the crowd how he put you know a potato in the brace and then when he pulls the thing down the potato's cut into two. Well, the magician then went on to say that he was looking for volunteers in the audience to put their head in the brace and a very beautiful sixteen year old girl was picked to volunteer. And Ed Mm. said that at that moment, he started to, quote, depart reality. Ed was a smart kid. He knew that, of course, the girl was not going to be beheaded or injured in any way in the middle of Butte, Montana, in a record store. However, yes, he started to fantasize about it. More specifically, he began to fantasize about beheading, specifically. We're going to see that a lot unfortunately, in the further episodes. and He's real big on that. But I can try to – how do I word this without becoming really weird? Um, <laughs> Too late. <laughs> no, just – just you know, death in itself is intriguing, especially to an inquisitive person. Certain types of death are more intriguing because you're like, how does that work? How do, you know, like, and beheading is one of the most intriguing – to me, it's still one of the most intriguing We will be breaking deaths. apart beheading um, Ed's – um, like the allure of beheading okay. in, in just a little bit. Oh, okay. So his fantasies, oh yeah. His fantasies were further fueled by the few times he spent with his father. For a time when his dad was around, the Kempers raised chickens and Ed recalls watching his dad chop the heads off of the chickens as a boy and then the family sitting down and eating that chicken I mean, for dinner. Yeah, that's how you eat chicken. So you're going to see, like I said, down the road. and wrapped in packages at the store. They start out (laughs) as actual animals. You're going to see later down the road that Ed has a big thing with heads. And maybe this is where it all started. Later on, Ed almost always beheads his victims. And then he likes to keep the heads for various reasons that we'll get into. Some people speculate that Ed simply cut the heads off and kept the heads in an effort to not get caught since dental records could be used to ID a body back then. However, it's rather symbolic if you think about it. The head is what makes a person a person. 
By removing and keeping their head, I truly believe, as do other criminal profilers that I've studied, that Ed wanted to erase the person by removing the thing that made them human, if that makes any sense. Well, it does because the that's humans, where the brain is. That's where say, the eyes are. I was about to say that you know, animals and creatures all over the world have brains, eyes, noses, mouths, ears, whatever that's you want to say. But the mouth is, that's where the words come from. And, you know, his mom's but, always yelling at him and bitching at him. That's Yeah, what makes a human a human is, you know, the ability to reason and you know, thought, will, right? All those kind of things. You take, and that's all. That's the brain. To your point, you take that stuff away; they're no longer human. Even so, Ed, by beheading, he claims their humanity, and we'll we'll dig into that later on in the series. I'm just touching on it. Yeah, right no, now. No, no, for sure. Back to Ed as a child. So he witnessed a magician with a guillotine tempting fate and playfully removed the head of a beautiful girl. Then he witnessed his father cut the heads off the family's chickens. Well, as Ed started to take these fantasies that were swirling around in his brain and act them out in real life, Ed's little sister, like so many of us as kids, had a collection of Barbies. I knew it. I knew that's where you're going. Well, Ed decided to pull the head off of her Barbie dolls, and then he removed their hands. And this is so foreboding, guys. Like, I wish I could go back in time and just intervene somehow and get him help or something, because it's, oh, God. I don't know how no one did, but whatever. Clearly, Mama didn't care. Yeah. So. Anyways, Ed, when questioned by his mother as to why the hell he would do this, Ed claimed that he was paying his sister back for when she broke his Mattel Fanner 50 cap gun, which was a gift from his cousin. He loved it. Ed argued that when his sister had broken his gun, his gun couldn't be repaired. However, the Barbie's head that he snapped off could be snapped right back on. So. It was more than a fair deal. I didn't really do eyes. any damage, duh. This is this is just simple sibling rivalry. However, when you look back in hindsight, it's so creepy yeah. because we're going to see that Ed very much will grow to turn his victims into human dolls, or like playthings, if you will. Very much so. It's very yeah. telling. Yeah, but by itself, when you have a, a brother and a sister arguing, I don't know how many... People out there that had younger or older brothers that are girls or older brothers that are listening, they probably all like, it fucking ripped the head off my sister's oh, yeah, Barbie doll. You know sure. what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, my sister, I could tell you stuff she did to me, and you'd be like, oh my god. It, it's only when, <laughs> it's only when fifteen to twenty years down the line they're doing that to real people. Yeah, then then and you're it's like, an oh, issue. I should have known something was up. Ed also liked to play with his sisters at times and like actually play. But yeah, by all accounts, not normal games. He did. Not normal games, though. His favorite game was one that he made up. Oh, fuck. It's called Gas Chamber. I've heard about this. <laughs> Basically, Ed would lead his sisters to a big overstuffed recliner, and each would take turns making believe that they were either in a gas chamber or sometimes in the electric chair. And once he had his sisters tie him up with cords and he would pretend that he was seizing in like an agony before just like dying. And they would all take turns doing that. <laughs> Weird, but whatever. Sounds good, wholesome family fun. <laughs> okay, this next, this next, like we say, he's starting to escalate. You know, well, it started with dolls it. and now it's going to. So to like he it. said, it starts with things and other people's property and then it goes to what? Animals. Okay. And then to people. So trigger warning. This is where things start to get a little, a little gross, really gross, actually. Um, animal abuse. A little so. dark, if you will. Unfortunately, Ed started killing cats. Why is it always cats, though? 
His family had two Siamese cats. Get this, Pat. Ed was pissed off that he couldn't train the cats to listen to him, and he was also really upset that the cats preferred to hang out with his sisters. So he decided to pick the cat that he felt was the most guilty of these offenses, and he buried the poor thing alive. Oh. This is a kind of like, if I can't have you, no one can kind of thing. exactly what it is. Well, Ed would stand and listen as the cat screamed and clawed underneath the ground beneath him. (laughs) Uh, eventually, eventually, after the cat died, it gets worse. No, well, that is a huge metaphor oh. to his childhood. Oh, absolutely. Because he was in the basement. Yeah. Locked away. That's literally his mom standing over him. Well, yep. We're going we're gonna to get right into that. Eventually, after the cat died, Ed dug, dug him up, cut off the cat's head, put it on a spike, and then began to pray to it, quote, like an Egyptian god. Because the dead cat was a symbol of freedom to Ed, who at this time was still having to sleep in the dark dungeon-like basement, like Patrick said. The prayers to the head of the cat were meant to be prayers of freedom from his captivity. For clarification, as, you know, as if that helps explain this at all. <laughs> Just well, trying to clarify it a little bit. Cats are considered extremely, like, holy in Egyptian culture. I guess, yeah, maybe. They're, yeah. they're like the he pets. He probably of, read books. I forget exactly what it is, but they're like the pets of gods or like the, the, the chosen animal, something like that of the gods. So they're very highly regarded. And then him standing over the buried body of the cat is literally his mom. He's praying for his own freedom too. Yeah. He's, it's literally his mom yeah. standing over him in the dungeon basement that he's in. Mm-hmm. And then the cat's dead and free, so he's free. A young Ed was an avid reader as well, so you know that he probably studied, you know, the Egyptians. And, stuff and what like kid that. doesn't start looking at mythology? Yeah. And, and then you get degree, and it's all really, like, cool and animal-y type. But very few of them are like, I'm going to go cut the head off my cat. Yeah, none of them, <laughs> none of them are like, I'm going to become fucking Anubis, the real-life exactly. version of him. Three years later, he killed the other family cat with a machete, and a knife before displaying its head on a serving platter and hiding its body in a closet. Again, he did this because the cat favored his younger sister Where over him. Where did he display it? Like in the kitchen or something? Like in the house? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm assuming because you said he hid the body in the closet. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's escalating. His, pa- his mom found out about all this. She knew yeah, about all this. So obviously, saying. he probably put it in the middle of the kitchen table that's if he I- put it on a serving platter. If he put it on a serving platter and displayed it to me, he put it somewhere in the house where everybody would fucking find it. Yep. I was just curious if they, if they mentioned No, that. his mom was very aware of what, what he was doing. So Ed would go on to blame his mother and her abuse towards him for the cat killings. He said, and I quote, my mother was there to beat me. She was there to humiliate me. She was there to use me as an example of how inferior men were. It started with surrogates on a non-human level, physical objects, my possessions, other people's. Destruction of things that are cared about. Then the destruction of things that are living on a lower level, small animals, insects, animals. Then finally people, just like we heard in the intro. It's odd to me how self-aware Ed is, in hindsight, of his own progression. And we will see that he spends lifetimes working with psychologists and specialists. So he has had the time to do a lot of reflection, I guess. And maybe that's why, but I don't know. And it's amazing, too, because, you know, he did his murders in the 70s and went to prison. Mm -hmm. Most serial killers are dead Mm -hmm. 
or executed mm-hmm. or in an insane asylum. So mm-hmm. he is truly like to this day, no one like everybody's probably like, no, don't, don't get rid of him. Like he's literally the dude everyone wants to talk to. Like you are the first serial killer. Yep. Dubbed by law enforcement as a serial. There's like four things you said that I can't wait for the last last episode because I want to touch on. It's going to be so awesome. Okay. Now, I mentioned before that Ed was close with Alan, his little sister, but his older sister, Susan, hated him. She viewed him as a, quote, sick demon child, which I don't know why that's so funny. But That's not far off, but I think every older sister refers to their younger brother as a sick demon child Mm -hmm. or younger sibling. I swear I've heard that in our house like three times. Oh, every day. Yeah. (laughs) Twice, Susan tried to get even with Ed, not... Not exact. I'm not sure what to call it, so I'm just saying tried to get even with him. One time she tried to push Ed in front of a train, but Ed dodged it. I almost say thankfully, however, lots of lives would have been saved if it's, that train had hit you know, him, you unfortunately. Want, you don't want a sister killing her little brother, but at the same time. Also, what kind of fucking household is this? We already know it's fucked God. up. God. But, but to your point, it's like if she had succeeded, would lots of lives eight, would have been saved. Nine people still be alive? A second time, Susan shoved him into the deep end of a pool, knowing damn well that his big ass couldn't swim. Hmm. However, Ed was able to kind of flail his way to safety to the side. Man, I think I've heard that story somewhere before. A little <laughs> kid drowning that turns into a serial killer monster. That's Jason. It's Jason Voorhees. Isn't that crazy? So Ed and Susan don't get along. I mean, duh. With all of these very clear attempts on his life, Ed decides to seek revenge on her. She's lucky whatever happens is all that happened. One day, Ed claims that as he was cleaning his rifle, it accidentally went off. Just you hate when that happens, when it accidentally just pops off. Just fucking, we used to call them desk pops. And a bullet whizzed right past Susan's head, burying itself into the wall behind her. Ed's reaction was, quote, oops. I was about to say, oopsie. <laughs> oopsie daisy. Yeah, we used to call those death pops when someone would discharge their weapon accidentally, like cleaning it or sitting at the desk. In the military. Well, the desk pop came from sitting at your desk and you're downrange or you're in the law enforcement and you accidentally your gun goes, pew, which no, it doesn't accidentally you. do that. Maybe it was his anger towards his sister and his mother that drove him to do what he did next. Another trigger warning, more animal abuse. Sorry, guys. We can't take it out on them. So Exactly. So we know that Ed brutally massacred his own cats. Well, at the age of 13, Ed shot and killed his neighbor's dog. Don't know why. Just probably because he had a gun and could. No, that's his outlet. Yeah. The first couple of times he did it with, and like you said, it progressed. So it started with the dolls and then he did it with the cats and it probably was a release for him. Like we talked about. They wanted to go up. It symbolized Dogs are the next. Or it symbolized a fuck you to his parent or his Mm -hmm. mom or his sister's. Well, by all accounts, Ed claimed that he was a dog person, which is why this was shocking. So in his mind, that was probably a form of escalation. It was escalation. It could have been just target of opportunity mm-hmm. where he was, and it was he just needed that release. By doing this, this not only pissed off the neighbors, but it also made him like a social pariah at school amongst his peers. He was already several feet taller than the rest of the kids at school. And although friendly, he was just super awkward. So in committing an act like this, he just became like beyond an outcast. I mean, who's going to want to hang out with the kid who shot a dog? You know, not not me. The oversized, weird uh, kid who has issues because he's abused that just killed a dog kid. Yeah. 
So socially, outside of his toxic home environment, Ed was struggling there too. Yeah, no, he had no escape there either. He would often hear his mother, and this sucks, he would hear his mom talking about him to other people, claiming that her son was, quote, weird, ugly, and she. he even heard her speculate that he was gay, which is just like, She's literally Jesus. just demeaning him as much as she can. Yeah. So she likes to talk shit about him. She's we'll, just, we'll she's see. just putting him down, beating him down. It's, it's the typical abuser profile. So while in Montana, Ed attended public schools, and around the age of 13, when he started going through puberty, he claimed that his fantasies started to grow, and the lines between his sexual desires and death and violence were very blurred. No. A serial yeah. killer that equates sex and violence and murder together? No. In Ed's words, he says, quote, As I started puberty, these fantasies had continued to grow when I was approached by a girlfriend, not physically or sexually, but emotionally. We are the same age, but she is ahead of me. She's aggressive. She's very beautiful. But I was not ready for this type of relationship. She really wanted a physical relationship, like kisses and flirting, and it terrified me because I didn't know how to react or control the emotions that germinated in me. So I take this statement to mean that basically girls wanted to kiss and flirt, but he was having horrible, violent fantasies, and he knew damn well he couldn't control himself around females, so he just clammed up. Maybe. I mean, I was going to make a joke, but he's like, all this stuff's going on. He's like, I didn't know how to... Take care of it. I want to be like, dude, just rub one out. You don't have to go kill everybody. Stop. That's what it literally sounds like when you're thinking about these kind of dudes that are these sexual, sexually driven murderers. Yeah. It's like. Well, I'm sure they do, and that's how it starts. But then the fantasies that they well, those, do it to have the, to. The blurred line. It, and the, does, the it becomes not enough yeah, exactly. after a while. That's exactly what, that's where the escalation comes yeah. in. Nothing's ever enough. We've seen that with. And you see that from, from this point of it. And like we talked about with Bundy, like. He was killing like what once every year or two, mm-hmm. and then it was six months, mm-hmm. and then it was six weeks because the urge just you can't never it's never you want satiable. more you want more you want it's more it's an addiction urge. to them. So as I said during this particular time, he was living with his mom in Butte, Montana, right? Yep. As we know, she's a very volatile woman, and her relationship with Ed is very volatile. Ed started to experience an overwhelming urge to kill his mother again. So on Thanksgiving Day of 1963, 14-year-old Ed stole his mom's car, drove to the bus station, and hopped on a bus to his dad's home in Van Nuys, California. Nice. When Ed arrived at his father's house, he told his dad all about how utterly miserable it was living with his mother. And to Ed's surprise, his father agreed for Ed to live with him for a while. I'm sure he was sympathetic to his son because he knew exactly how awful Clark was. He's like, fuck yeah, you need to get away from your mom. Now, Ed's dad had remarried a woman named Elfried Weber. Absolutely a stunning woman, by the way. She she looked just like Marilyn Monroe, like exactly like her. So her dad's not his dad's not upset about his his choices, obviously. Um I don't I don't know. He will be though. If he tra- I don't know if he knows the extent, but if he, he will if he traded be. in his uh abusive mean wife for Marilyn Monroe. I don't think he's too upset right now. No. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's good there. Whereas according to Ed, Clarnell was a quote, large ogre. Alfred was quite. The- <laughs> he called his mom a large ogre. He did. 
That was a quote. I didn't say it. <laughs> oh, that's kind of funny. Uh, Alfred was the opposite, at least physically. Alfred had a young son from a previous marriage that also lived with them. And that's pretty that's pretty controversial in that day and age, isn't it? We're talking about like 1960? Yeah. It's crazy. Upon Ed's arrival, the household wasn't exactly a happy one. Ed's new stepmom did not like Ed. She claimed that her six-foot-two stepson would stare at her until she became beyond uncomfortable, and even then he wouldn't stop. Well, it makes sense because he spent his entire childhood staring into a furnace all the time. At one point, Ed happened to catch her undressing in her bedroom, and he stayed and stared just a little too long. I, it's creepy. He doesn't know this woman, and he's like, titties? <laughs> I'm 13. Like, yeah, hey. you know what I mean. Like, yeah. so there's a little bit of teenage boy there, but then there's also a little bit of creeper. Well, Ed's presence was so upsetting to Elfried that she began to have chronic migraines as a result. So she made it clear to her husband that this living situation just it's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. So a decision was made to send Ed to live with his paternal grandparents, so his dad's parents, on their absolutely beautiful Sierra foothill. Foothills Farm in North Fork, California. This was a decision that Mm -hmm. greatly upset Ed. Again, he felt like a ping pong ball bouncing from one place to the next. Feels like no one fucking wants him. Yeah. And to add insult to injury, after a few days of staying with his grandparents, Ed tried, tried to call his dad, only to find out that his dad had changed his phone number, and his new phone number was unlisted. Yeah. Uh, his so that's, wife didn't want Ed around at all. That's pretty damn cold. Not only had his father made it clear that he's effectively washing his hands of Ed, at least for now, but Ed's mother even called up Ed's dad and told him that he was taking a huge risk having their son move in with the grandparents. She informed her ex-husband about Ed's propensity for killing animals and then ended the conversation with, quote, you may be surprised to wake up one morning to learn that they have all been killed, end quote. Mm. What makes me so angry, I think, about Clarnell is that that phone call to Ed's father was not made as an attempt to help Ed or even to help the grandparents. It was she was just talking shit about her kid. She like, was talking shit she about takes her kid every opportunity. Yeah, every opportunity to time. do so. She's just a she, was, she was trying to demean two men at one time. So Ed, although not happy about it, is made to live with his grandparents, Edmund Kemper Sr. and his wife, Maud, 72 and 66, respectively. Although Ed liked and got along with his grandfather, his grandmother was a lot like Clarnell, his mother. Yeah, she was a very domineering and overbearing woman. Maud, Ed's grandmother, very much had the attitude that she was going to reform Ed by instilling some very old school values and habits in yeah, him. Yeah, saw that coming. Ed was enrolled promptly in school there. Good, the the good. Sierra Joint Union High School in nearby Toll House, California. And he behaved for the most part, despite his size, now six foot four and 160 pounds. Ed remained a ghost. He just kind of blended into the background. They weren't trying to recruit this kid for basketball? <laughs> Six foot four, 160 pounds? I can promise you they weren't. <laughs> I mean, new kid shows up to my school. Six foot four, 160 pounds. I'm like, bro. You All ball? you'd have to do is probably talk to him at this point and be like, yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, but you're I'd, be, I'd be at, least, at least be like, hey, can you play? At the farm, it was an entirely different story, however. 
Things were off to a rocky start with Ed's new living arrangements. See, Ed was gifted a brand new 22 caliber hunting rifle by his grandfather. Well, his grandmother took it away from him because he was killing birds on the farm just for the sake of killing them, like that he wasn't going to eat them or anything. Yeah. It really upset his grandmother that Ed started shooting at the songbirds outside what she loved. She just really felt there was no need for it, and I kind of agree. Which is not so, wrong. So uh, taking away his rifle was the obvious punishment in her mind, and honestly, I would have done that. I wouldn't have given that, that kid a rifle well, to begin with. No, I know they're also in, like on a farm, too. They're on a farm. They're trying to bond. Well, he also food. has a job. Like, he shoots gophers and stuff like that to keep yeah, them from say, destroying was, the crops. probably yeah. for that kind of purposes, and it's, you know, it's a guy thing, bonding. You give him a gun, it's a bond. And yeah, and Ed had little jobs. Probably, yeah, and they're, but they're trying, they're really trying with him because right. he's been bounced around. They know probably know how his mom is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his dad was just like, fuck off, go up here. So they're probably really trying to connect with him and just Especially his grandfather. Yeah. Because they think, you know, they're, they're old school. They think they're not going to be able to help him unless they bond with him and connect to him. So it pissed Ed off that his grandmother took the rifle away. Yeah, another woman taking shit from him, yeah, putting him down. Exactly. Taking away another man that's trying to love him. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And like to your point, his anger grew also when he witnessed his grandfather who. Like Ed and his father was a big tall man, he succumbed to the nagging and dominance of his grandmother Which constantly. Is just a and that, of his mom oh and his yeah, dad absolutely. In Ed's mind, this was the same situation he had grown up in. Clarnell and his grandmother were much the same, both man haters, and Ed's grandfather and his father had to answer to them. So Ed began fantasize about killing his grandmother, much like he had his mother. Yeah. Everything came to a head in the summer of 1964 when Ed was 15 years old. It was August 27th, and Ed was watching his grandmother type on her typewriter that she had set up on the kitchen table. She wrote stories for Boy's Life magazine, so she had been working on her latest fictional tale to submit to the editor. He angrily stared at her for a long time before she raised her head up from her work and noticed her grandson just like staring at her angrily <laughs> and this upset her. And she was like, the fuck do you want? And fuck I know, are you staring I know exactly. <laughs> Take a picture. <laughs> it will last longer. Ed snatched his beloved 22 from the gun rack by the kitchen and asked his grandma if he could go and shoot rabbits and gophers. Preoccupied with her writing, she agreed, but she interjected, don't shoot any birds, Ed. And this, for whatever reason, infuriated him. Like, how dare she boss him around? It's all she does to the men in this house, right? And this was the moment that the line between Ed's fantasy about killing his grandmother and reality came to a collision. As she typed furiously on the typewriter, Ed walked outside through the screen door, turned, and raised his rifle, aimed it at the back of his grandmother's head, and fired through the screen door, so she didn't ever see it coming. No. Maud slumped forward onto her typewriter. He then fired two more times, hitting his grandmother in the back both times. Then Ed walked back inside into the kitchen, got a carving knife from the drawer, and stabbed his grandmother an undisclosed amount of times in the back for a good measure. To make sure. Ed would later say... That the reason for this overkill was that, quote, he didn't think she was dead and he didn't want her to suffer. 
However, I find this odd since he was an expert shot, having taken shooting classes at the NRA. So to me, this was a sign that he was enraged because he knew damn well that his grandmother was dead after the first time he shot her in the head. He does or he doesn't. He, you know, we don't know the mental He's state. angry at her, too. He's, 100% he's wanting angry. to. The anger This is the first it. person he killed, but so he's my, wanting to. That's my point, right? Savor it. Is that Ugh. obviously he's angry and just snapped. But he's never killed before a human being. So mm-hmm. he's not so he might not be hundred percent sure she's dead. And he's like, well, maybe if she's not dead, I don't actually want her to suffer. I just want her dead. So there is some validity. I, I think, think it though. was because when you see how he shoots his grandfather, spoiler alert, that he was just angry at oh, his grandmother. He is definitely just yeah. angry. Well, Ed in the middle of his meltdown realized he wasn't done. Shortly after he had slaughtered his own grandmother, his grandfather pulled up in the driveway and began unloading groceries and supplies out of his truck. His unsuspecting grandfather looked up, saw Ed, and nodded and waved, and Ed returned the greeting. Ed then walked behind his grandfather, rifle in hand, and shot him in the head from behind. Once. Almost robotically, Ed decided to drag his grandfather into the garage to hide the carnage from any nosy neighbors who may be nearby. You may be wondering, since Ed loved his grandfather, why did he decide to kill him then, you know? He would later claim that he wanted to spare his grandfather the heartache of coming home and finding his wife brutally murdered in their kitchen. There's some logic there. There is. He cares about his grandfather. He does. For whatever reason, he snapped and killed him, but he doesn't want to do him, because in his mind, not killing him. He's going to cause him harm. He doesn't want to cause him there harm. There wasn't the rage behind his murder either. No, he doesn't want to cause him harm. And the only way to not cause him that harm is to kill him. After Ed washed the blood off his hands using the outside water hose, he returned back inside the house and for a second contemplated, trigger warning, contemplated undressing his grandmother because he had never seen a naked woman before. But he quickly decided that that's just a little bit too perverted, even by his standards. That will go fuck him up even more. Later on, we will unfortunately see that any moral issues Ed may have had with post-mortem rape of a family member will fall by the wayside. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Now that Ed had killed both of his grandparents, his adrenaline rush was starting to kind of, you know, dissipate. And he was at a crossroads as to what his next steps would be. Ed decided to go back to the garage, retrieve his grandfather's body, drag it back inside the house, and hide him in a closet. His initial plan was to just stay in the house and shoot and kill any visitors that may come by. However, Ed started to think oddly about his mother and how she would surely know what to do. Weird how he runs to mom. After he killed two people in the family, he's like, mom knows what's up. This is odd since he has such an intense hatred for his mother, but it does go to show you that although he's a monster, he's still, he's a child. He's, he's 15. He needs guidance, you know, and And most likely so messed up. He's 15 and most likely due to the abuse he endured, he's probably emotionally dependent on his mother much younger. Oh yeah. He's probably nine, 10, 11 because I guarantee you his emotional growth was stunted because he sleeps in a fucking sleeping bag in a hole and has no friends. So Ed did, in fact, call his mother, and he told her everything he had done. Surprising, right? Clarnell told Ed that she she wasn't surprised, by the way. She did call his dad and say, don't be surprised if they both end up dead. Clarnell told Ed that she would call the police, and he was to stay there and wait for the cops to arrive. 
Always distrusting of his mother, after they hung up the phone, Ed went ahead and called the local Madera County Sheriff's Department himself to tell them exactly what he had done. Then he sat on his grandparents' front porch and calmly waited for them to arrive. Yep. When the police arrived, yeah. When the police arrived, they found 15-year-old Ed sitting just out on the front porch, expressionless, emotionless. After they located the bodies of Ed's grandparents, they asked the boy for an explanation as to why he had murdered them. Ed famously said, and I quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma, end quote. (laughs) That's fucking nuts, too. It is a famous quote. You heard it a million times, but it's like, it's still weird. Very. To say the least. Especially when you put all the context of the story in front of it. Yeah. I just wanted to see what it was like to kill grandma. To fuck. He did add to, uh, he did tell police that he had contemplated, this is weird, taking his own life after he killed his grandfather. However, he didn't want to leave a mess for the police to find, which the police found odd because Ed had, in fact, he did. He cleaned up after his grandfather, washed the blood and everything, but he didn't even attempt to clean up after his grandmother's brutal murder scene. Like there was blood everywhere. Well, because to him, he wasn't a bad guy. Mm-hmm. His grandfather was a good guy. They didn't deserve to have to be cleaned up, but his his grandmother was his mother, and they were just horrible humans. So the cops could de- deal with them. How you know what I mean? Like there's a weird, oh, oh yeah, there's a weird association going on there. Years later, renowned Stanford professor and psychiatrist Dr. Donald Lundy would analyze Ed's early criminal and homicidal behavior. He would conclude that quote, in his way, he had avenged. The rejection of both his father and his mother. 100%. And I would have to 100% agree with that statement. 100%. Because Ed harbored the same hatred for his grandmother that he did for his mom. He constantly compared the two women, even as an adult in his later years. So there's no doubt in my mind that in Ed's screwed up mental state and killing his grandparents, he had, in fact, in his own way, killed his parents. 100%. The correlation's spot on, right? His grandmother is just like his mother. It's the same relationship. His Grandfather was a good man, gave him a gun, gave him a couple jobs to do, was trying to love him just like his dad would do. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it is 100% the same thing. He was like, I killed them in my mind because I was killing my parents. Like, it, the dude's was spot on. Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, he would say so. He's a fucking psychology professor at a university. I'm Stanford, just, yeah. I'm just, he knows a thing or two about a thing I'm or two. I'm just an asshole with a microphone, so... <laughs> I mean, Same. He, <laughs> he, uh, he probably does know better, so he doesn't need me saying that he's spot on. But yeah, what he said. <laughs> and that fucking dude from Evil Pudding said I was good. Fuck your Nobel Prize. Exactly. I got this shit. <laughs> Validation, bitches. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, Ed, seeing as though he was just a kid, 15, when he committed the brutal murders of his paternal grandparents, he got off fairly easy, some may think. Initially, he was placed in the juvenile court system where they did a psychological evaluation on him. It was determined that Ed was suffering from, in their opinion, schizophrenia only. But now, well, exactly. Now, back then in 1964, schizophrenia was a kind of trash. It was a kind of trash can of all mental illnesses. If you displayed any antisocial tendencies whatsoever, you were going to be labeled a schizophrenic. 
the field of psychology still had a long way to go. So don't hang your hat on that diagnosis. No, We're it's gonna 100% get more. a catch-all. Like there's like three or four yeah. things you can be diagnosed. If, but if there's something wrong with you and we can't figure out what it is and you don't fit whatever depression Like I've or literally whatever. read books about like in the old insane asylums, you know, them saying like uh, – menopausal women they were schizophrenic i mean it's just honestly it was a catch-all back then it's all they could say yeah and it it, it lends itself all the way through even to now because we call everybody everybody that has an issue we call psycho. them crazy psycho psycho yeah, yeah. They're, they're having issues they're like they're psychotic like it's the same thing we're just putting them in that bucket on december 6th 1964 ed was moved from juvenile hall to what was then known as atascadero state hospital for the criminally criminally insane <laughs> It's not a very PC name by today's standards. Like, I wonder if that was on a sign out front. <laughs> I liked their names back then. They made more sense. It wasn't like Rejuvenation Center. No, it was like, Rejuvenation is like it's fucking, a Botox spa. It's like a, like a weekend spa. No, this is the criminally insane. A Rejuvenation Center. Can you imagine it's walking like, in like and New, Big Ed Kimber's there? I'm Botox. Center. Also used to be formerly known as the state of New Mexico's mental hospital for the criminally insane. Oh, my God. At that time, Atascadero was an adult facility only that housed 1,600 hardcore inmates. The average age of an inmate there was 36 years old, and here's Ed, only 15. Butte, Montana in the 1960s, how many multiple murderers do they have? This is in California. Oh, it's in California. I'm yeah. Sorry, but it's still Remember his grandparents? in the 1960s. Yeah. How many multiple murderers do they have? To you or I, being sentenced to a hospital for the criminally insane as a child may seem terrifying. However, Ed was in his element. Most young men would step foot into the hospital. Most young men who did step foot into the hospital would fall victim to rape and abuse by other inmates or patients. However, because Ed was literally a hulk of a human. A fucking ogre. He didn't ever have to worry about that. Yeah, no shit. The guy that comes in that's six foot five, 200 pounds, everyone's like, yep, yeah, not fucking with that dude. Instead, he experienced... Lots of attention and treatment and underwent various psychological tests. It was discovered upon Ed's arrival that he had an IQ of 145, which is higher than 99% of the population. So he is indeed an evil genius. The shrinks would later throw out Ed's initial diagnosis of schizophrenia and replace it with the following list of disorders. Get ready because I'm about to spout off. A ton of them. Not even all of them. Let me take a breath. Breathe it in. Are you gonna rattle are you gonna rattle it off like those like a rap like the rap god from Eminem? No, not like rap god, but like those um prescription commercials be like, so if you're curious, <laughs> take this prescription drug. Eyeball falling out. <laughs> it sounded like you're about to go in on this, like the micro machine man. Personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type. Negative, negativistic personality, personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, paranoid, dependent, antisocial personality disorder, avoidant personality disorder. Disorder. We're well, saying disorder a lot, so I don't blame you. Just to name a few. Which is kind of funny. Uh, it's, it's I'd be not, here for 10 minutes. Well, it's not funny because it's the 1960s, right? It's funny now in 2022, 
We could probably all of those are balled up into all one, of our really, antisocial. Right? Well, antisocial, and then also the dependent histrionic is different. Well, too. antisocial and borderline personality, if I'm mis- not mistaken, are the same thing. They're gender mm-hmm. specific. Mm, I think so. Borderline's female, antisocial is male. Is that is that right? I didn't I'm, know that. I'm ninety percent sure that's correct. Correct us if we're wrong, but yeah, yeah correct us if we're I wrong. I didn't know that. But you know, our boy Alex was antisocial's archetype in a movie. Oh yeah, from that's uh, right. Clockwork Orange. According to author Derry Matera, they based their diagnoses on the fact that Ed showed no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. I just, Maybe I'm wrong, but I would venture to say that Edmund Kemper indeed suffers from bizarre thinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so... How could they come to that conclusion? But I'm not a doctor. Well, Pat, this is where things get interesting. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Ed, who is a genius, was manipulating the system. (gasps) No. FBI special agent and author of Mindhunter, John Douglas, would later write of Ed, quote, Ed used his big brain to memorize 28 correct responses to routine physical physiological assessments, assessment questions. And these tests were meant to determine if the patient would eventually be reformed enough to be released back into society. Society. So he would actually memorize the answers to these tests. In fact, a young Ed became such a star patient in that facility, Pat, Mm -hmm. that he was eventually assigned to work at the facility's psychiatric laboratory where he assisted in administering testing and treatment to other patients. I heard that. I had heard all this. I think today this would definitely be some sort of a HIPAA violation, but I mentioned this because Patrick, Ed was able to see firsthand how to pass a psych- psychological evaluation. You see how they get through He it. learned through other patients exactly what to do and what not to do, too. Mind you. Right, right, right. He's, he's learning everything that he needs to do or every box that needs to be checked. And get this. I'm about to blow your mind. Ed was later quoted as saying, quote, I helped develop some new tests and some new scales. I helped to develop the overt hostility scale. How's that for an ironic note? So, guys, somewhere out there right now, a psych patient is quite possibly being administered an evaluation co-created by Edmund Kemper. And, and thankfully not by me because I was wrong. They're not gender specific when I was talking about antisocial and borderline. Did you hear that? Um, oh, yeah, I heard that. Okay. He, like, he actually helped co-create it. He created it. That's what I'm saying. I would definitely not crazy? be the one to create it because I just got that wrong. I was talking about a minute ago. Um, but the fact that he actually co-created a scientific scale that is used, that is used to measure today. a human being right yeah. now. Yeah. Bananas. It blows my butt. Bana- Not only do they let him do it, like maybe that's part of portion of his therapy, if you will. Maybe. But the fact that they actually use it is different. Hi, coconut. Like it's one thing if it helps you therapeutically, if I let you think you're helping, you know, treat other patients, do these kind of things, yeah. it's helping your personality stuff. But then it. actually to use it and like make no, it a real you. thing, that's fucking nuts. It is nuts. So uh, you, you had a correction about the bipolar? and Well, I, I think I spoke wrongly. I don't think it's gender specific. I was just oh, looking okay. and I couldn't see anything that actually said. I don't know why I thought that. that. it was gender specific. I thought I remember that. Specific. <laughs> class I took in like the days I went to college, which was like. The days. <laughs> the few days. 
think that might have been in a different century. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, so that's probably why it's wrong. That's okay. You corrected yourself. That 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 means a lot. Well, because I didn't want to put all that out there and be like, <laughs> and just be like, like, he's a dumbass. I do. I just so you all know, I do Google a lot. That's why Courtney's like, you good? Or she'll be like, do you hear that? I'm like, are you paying attention? He's over there attention. scrolling on his phone. I am paying attention, but I'm also trying to make sure I was not talking out my butthole the entire time. Which I usually am, so. That's okay. We love it for it. As a model prisoner at Atascadero, Ed was even inducted into the junior JCs. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, you wouldn't know it. I, I know it. I just said I'll talk out my ass even if I don't know it. Well, <laughs> I I think that um, John Wayne Gacy was in the JCs Oh, I have no fucking well. idea. Okay, anyways. I'm not even going to confirm If you're not either. familiar with the organization, I'm really not either. Um, <laughs> but I Googled it. I'm really not either, but I did Google it and it's basically a leadership training and civic organization. It's, it's not something I would picture like a homicidal maniac joining, but I mean, Again, if Gacy it, it did, it sounds then like a therapy thing for someone that has like a, 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 a propensity to try to be in charge or try to run things. Like he's obviously doing that. He's running out trying to give therapy. Well, it's not a therapies. It's not a, um, like prison thing. Oh, it's like a real thing? Yeah. Like you could be in the JCs. Yeah, it's crazy. It's I feel like it's like Boy Scouts. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I know y'all will. Nothing Just be like nice Boy about Scouts. It. Boy Scouts is saints. Whatever. So <laughs> in another way to manipulate the system, Ed noticed that those with strong religious values were more likely to get paroled. Duh. We see this often. So he started reading his Bible and practicing religion with other converts at the facility. Right. From a psychiatrist's perspective, Ed was reformed. It's a damn miracle. He was trying, right? He's, he's doing everything we're asking him to in the 1960s. However, there was one thing he didn't share with his shrinks. He was receiving an off-the-books education, is what I liked to call this, from other inmates who were doing time at Atascadero for rape. He loved to hang out with the rapists. Well, here's the thing. You know what prisoners learn in prison? Yeah. How not to get caught. Exactly. So I don't care if he's being reformed or all these things. He's around other criminals. He's going to learn from other criminals. He gravitated towards those serving time for sexually based offenses. And rapists were all very anxious to share details of their crimes with young Ed. They love to fucking talk about it. He took mental notes and paid particular attention to what they had done wrong to get themselves caught and thrown into prison. And he filed all of this knowledge away for future use in his great big ugly head. Now, although Ed had nearly all of the Atascadero staff fooled, I have to be fair and give credit where credit is due. There was one staff psychiatrist who wasn't 100% convinced that Ed Kemper was equipped with the societal tools needed to be released back into society. Well, you can. So I'm not going to throw them all under the bus. He's checking all the boxes, but somebody's going to look at him and be like, you're literally, no one's ever that perfectly rehabbed. You know what I mean? Well, and he, that wasn't even his point, And you'll see, because I'm going to read a quote. Listen okay. to his point, And it's true. And we go into it the next, after I read his quote. In the book, Serial Killers by Peter Vronsky, Dr. William Shanberger says regarding Ed, quote, Here we have a young man, now 21 or 22, probably never had a date in his life, probably has the usual interests, and needs to connect with women. What can you tell someone about yourself? 
that I murdered my grandparents and that I was in a mental hospital for the last five years of my life, I can't imagine how difficult it has to be. That doesn't excuse anything. In my mind, it describes a situation, end quote. And where's the lie? Because as the world has changed on the outside, Ed Kemper really never got the chance to mature past the age he was incarcerated. So him being released as a 20-something man back into the world, he's going to fall short. He will have nothing in common with anyone else his age, much less women. And as far as dating goes, when is it a good time to bring up that you were doing time in an insane asylum for murdering both your grandparents? Like, is that a second date thing? (laughs) I'm thinking it's like fourth date or definitely before you smash. (laughs) Pass. (laughs) You got to bring that up first. I want to bring that up afterwards. I, I can't imagine any female being receptive to that, you know. But regardless of any misgivings that anyone may have had about Ed's release back into society, after spending five years at Atascadero, Ed Kemper was a free man now at the age of 21 years old, standing six feet nine inches tall and weighing in at around 280 pounds at this time. Man, it's almost like I've heard of someone killing multiple people in their early teens and being out by the time they're 25. Yeah. It's crazy. Man, it's almost like the runaway devil girl didn't do it or something like that. I know. Yeah. I fucking hate the juvenile laws. And she was Canadian too. Well, she was three murders. Jasmine Richardson. Yeah. 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 She was three murders. Go back and listen to that episode. Runaway devil. It's craziest fucking story. Ed's mental health professionals at Atascadero recommended that Ed not live with his abusive mother upon release. However, guess what Ed did upon his release? Well, where the fuck else am I going to go? He went to mommy's. I was 15 when I got locked up. I have nothing, no money. Where am I going to go? His mother was now living in a duplex in Santa Cruz, California. And that's where he moved. Near her job, working as an administrative assistant for Adlai E. Stevenson College, a small residential college at the University of Santa Cruz. What could go wrong? Nothing. So the year, picture it, it's 1969. It had just been the summer of love. Woodstock and the the Manson murders were dominating the news. Mm -hmm. The Manson murders? Feminism and free love was taking off. Burn the bra. And Big Ed Kemper was oblivious to all of it. The fuck is going on? When he emerged from Atascadero, he was utterly oblivious to it all. All he had to offer society was a GED, or the equivalent of a high school diploma, that he obtained while in the institution. At least he got that. Yeah, he did. Ed would later say, and I quote, When I got out on the street, it was like being on a strange planet. People my age were not even talking the same language. I had been living with people older than I was for so long that I was an old fogey, end quote. You know what mentally I'm picturing as you describe that? Hmm. Remember old Red? Not Red. uh, Brooks in uh, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah. old ass Brooks got released. He went to prison before cars existed. And he came out and he's like in the road. He's he's all like. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, what the fuck is this world I was just released into? And ends up killing himself. That just reminds me of that scene with Brooks. And also. Yeah, absolutely. We did an episode on the prison. 
That movie was filmed in. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. I am throwing shameless Ohio. fucking plugs everywhere right now. <laughs> Ohio State Reformatory. <laughs> That's like the third plug I've just dropped. Like, ha! So feeling like a fish out of water, Ed got a job working for the California State Public Works Division of Highways. That's a mouthful. Oddly enough. Wait, where was he work? I'm not saying it again. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough. This was the same agency that employed his grandfather that he had killed. Probably. That's why he went there. I guarantee you. Ed did okay. He was like gargantuan. So he excelled at the physical aspect <laughs> of his job. Move this fucking concrete road over here. He's like, Ugh. well, his coworkers would give him the nickname forklift because he was able to carry a 95 pound bag of cement over his shoulder. Like it was nothing. However, Ed had bigger aspirations. Ironically, he wanted to become a police officer. Yeah. I remember that. But he exceeded the maximum height and weight requirements <laughs> you can be that big. to join the force. So, sorry, Ed, you can't protect and serve. <laughs> Don't think you were going to be able to anyway once they looked into your background, but hey, whatever. Well, um, yeah, because he was able to get his record sealed. Um, yeah, sealed. We'll he go back into that. That's right. He was a minor. But really, I just wanted to carry a gun and be a big man in charge. Authority. Right. Power. Now, earlier in the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that I really want us to take a look at our criminal justice system and see what we could improve so that things like this don't happen again. Well, here's something. <laughs> Part of Ed's release plan, thankfully, was that he's supposed to see his parole officer every other week and a social worker Every single week. So he's going to be busy. Well, that never happened. No. In fact, Ed even called his district parole officer and was like, "Um, excuse me, isn't someone supposed to be coming to see me? He said it had been like three weeks and he was getting nervous because he hadn't seen or heard from anybody. He's worried he's going to get thrown back up. the guy on the other end of the line, like Ed called them. The guy on the other end of the line said, quote, why is there a problem? And Ed said, no, I don't have any problem. And the guy on the phone just told Ed that they would get to him, you know, when they could. But it never happened. No one ever got to him. <laughs> I know that California was, you know, very busy at this time. There was lots of crime going on. There was uh, Herbert Mullins was on the well, loose. Well, I mean, it was the decade of the serial killer. Manson. Uh, I mean, it was it was, it was right bad. Before, it was right before the seventies, especially in the, the college towns. Yeah, yeah. so hitchhiker murders all. I know they had their Zodiac. hands full, but come on, guys, you know. Oh, anyways, or would it have even made a difference? I don't think so. Well, I mean, because he, he eventually did see somebody months, even maybe a year down the road, and he boasted about like like a social worker or a therapist came to visit him or something. And he, ta- he talked about when he was sitting in the living room talking to her, how he had a head in his refrigerator. <laughs> so I guess, no, it wouldn't help. No, probably not. Or either that or the other side, he's already faked his way out of damn. He's able hospital. to manipulate. Yeah. I mean, we see it happen like it, all the way Even through. if they had started the regiment as soon as he got out, if he's playing his cards, six months into it, they're going to be like, he doesn't need to see us every week or every other week or every month even. He's, he's fine. You know yeah. what I mean? He's always going to find a way. So Ed, out of the institution and with a job, although not his dream job, needed a way to get around. He has to go to work. He has to. Fucking bicycle at least. In a feeble attempt to fit in and be cool, hip, and with it, (laughs) 
Ed purchased a motorcycle so that he could feel like a highway cop. That's not me saying that. That was him. Ed was not a careful motorist, however, and he wound up getting in two car two car crashes. Two crashes. One crash was actually fairly bad. A woman had hit him while riding his bike and his motorcycle, and he broke his arm and suffered a concussion. In fact, he had to have a metal plate inserted in his skull where it was fractured. And there it is. I'm telling you, it always, always. There is the crown jewel. Always a head injury. Of the serial killer. Always a head injury. I challenge you to find me, and seriously, I want to be wrong, but find me one serial killer that didn't have a head injury. That is truly. I'll shout you out on air. <laughs> and I will truly, and you have to prove that they didn't have a head injury. Yeah, you have to prove. And that is truly where the name Evil Pudding even came from, was we were talking about one of the serial killers, the first one we were talking about, and it was, what would their brain look like because of the head injuries? And he also had syphilis and a bunch of other stuff well, yeah, going on. he had a whole on. bunch of other shit going on. But he had head injuries as a child. Mm-hmm. And we both said, oh, look, I would evil love pudding. to see a brain scan, and yeah, Pat well, said it would be a bowl of pudding. I said, what flavor of pudding? And you said, Evil, evil Pudding. <laughs> Hence, evil pudding. <laughs> and it is funny because we didn't intentionally put that as a theme. But every fucking serial killer we talk about has it's a so head true, injury. so true, dude. Oh, my God. It's so true. Especially as a child. Yeah. And I not mean. Not just the abuse, not just trauma, but there is some sort of physical head injury, which in some way, now, shape, or form. I know he killed before this, but not to this degree. You know he killed I mean? before, but he escalates after the head yeah. injury. Maybe it's, and it has been widely theorized, and I've seen this before. That that head injury does something to do with the aggression or the the temporal it's temporal lobe lobe, exactly temporal lobe damage aggression and and then the uh, the ability to not reason well right and wrong it impairs your impulsivity when it's damaged that's where I was trying to go I just had no words that's okay I don't word well you don't word I word I don't word well (laughs) I fucking kick ass at Scrabble but I can't put them in sentences I wordle I beat you all the time. You never play Wordle. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Anyways, this isn't all bad news for Ed, however, because because of this car accident or this motorcycle accident, he received an insurance <laughs> he received an insurance payout of fifteen thousand dollars, money that he would use to purchase a much safer vehicle. Sorry, I got allergy sneezy thing going on. The vehicle that would ultimately become his killmobile, a boat sized. 18-foot-long, yellow, two-door Ford Galaxy that he basically equipped like a police cruiser. That's a badass, big-ass car. He got a radio transmitter for it, a microphone, and a big whip antenna. Hey, if he can't be a police officer, at least he can look the part, right? (laughs) Yeah, and it's nothing to go to Radio Shack and buy a CB radio and throw it in your car. That's true. So Ed has a new souped-up ride, and he's living near a college. In an effort to have some common ground with the intimidating pretty young girls around town, Ed started picking up hitchhikers. Not hurting them at first. I would venture to say that he was studying them. I have – this is how fucked up my brain is. I have to share this. (laughs) Because you're talking about this, and he's obviously – we're talking about how – Fifteen when he went in, just got out. Probably still super emotionally young, intellectually young. Doesn't know how to deal with people his own age. And then you're like, he's trying to fit in with the crowd, and all I see is Bobby Boucher and the Water Boy going slap hands, slap hands, like trying to get everybody to be his friend. But why? I don't. That's where my brain goes. Oh my god, it's messed up. 
I mean, okay. But I had to share it because it's so messed up. <laughs> I don't even know how to, you don't even make a segue for me after saying that. <laughs> Back to you, Courtney. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing else. So. Well, Ed would drive the hitchhikers he picked up anywhere they wanted to go. The further away they needed to go, the more time he would have with them like to get free, to know them. He's like free fucking Uber right now. In fact, he drove one young woman 300 miles away as far north as the Oregon border. It's estimated that during this time, Ed Kemper gave away 150 free rides during the span of this year. He would later say that he felt that the young girls accepting rides from him were, quote, stupid for taking such a risk. Oh, yeah. He's going to be extremely domineering now. He's quoted as saying, when someone put their hand on my car door handle, they were giving me their life. And Ed loved having this power. He loved it so much that he began to have, here we go again, dark fantasies about what he wanted to do to these young women. I could kill these girls and they would never even know. And that's going to escalate and grow. So Ed began outfitting his car with what he would later call kill kits. He stuffed his car's trunk with garbage bags, knives, swords, towels, blankets, garrots, ropes, and belts. He even figured out how to jam the passenger door so that the future victims wouldn't be able to escape. I'm going to tell you all this because I feel that in some capacity, we as women need to know this. We should never accept rides from strangers. Especially six foot nine, 300 pound dudes. But this is how he would jam the passenger door. I think it's important that we know this. Okay. Because he did it when they were in the car. It didn't like it wasn't it oh. didn't stay jammed. Okay. So we can kind of keep an eye out. I thought maybe in he case did, we're in an Uber or something. Maybe, I thought maybe there was like a disabled mm-hmm. interior door nope. handle or something. Okay. So this is how he did it. He would reach his arm across his future future passenger, right? So he would be driving and reach his arm across you under the guise of like properly closing the passenger door. But instead, he would secretly wedge a tube of lip balm behind the door's locking mechanism. I thought that was interesting, and it sounds like something us as women should, like, just be aware of, you know, that people know how to do This is how some people do it. You can't be too careful. However, just don't accept rides from strangers. Yeah, exactly. Surprisingly enough, even though Ed was all set to abduct and kill, I do find this strange. He continued to offer free rides to hitchhikers without ever hurting anyone for a whole year. Kill kits in the back. He estimated to have offered, get this, another 700 free rides to young women, all of which were blissfully unaware that their driver had a kill kit in the trunk of his car. So that was the escalation, though. He fantasized about it. So and then, then he, the kill kit. Then he equipped the car to do it. And then he'll escalate from there. But he isn't doing it yet. He just equipped the car. So that was his escalation. Can you imagine being one of those those people that, that got a ride from Ed after he got arrested yeah. and be like, oh Holy my shit, God. That dude drove me 300 miles to the <gasps> Oregon border. I would shit my pants. I swear to God. Oh my God. So Ed refers to this period of what I call practice runs as, quote, playing chess. It's a rehearsal. Yeah, exactly what it is. The chess game was over, however, and Ed Kemper was about to begin his reign of terror. And that's where we're going to end. Next week, we will unfortunately dive headfirst into his brutal murders and his victims. So make sure you meet us back here for part two of Confronting Kemper. Can we keep going? 
I know. We want to know what happens, but you got to wait. So good. Good. I'm glad you're enjoying Well, it's so bad, but it's. Well, this dude is patient zero of behavioral health. He really is. In law enforcement. So he's so intriguing to just. Dissect. He supports apart. so many theories, but he punches holes in so many theories. Even our theory about head injuries, he killed before the head injury that we know about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So he, just, he's just fascinating. He's fascinating. He's fucking fascinating. He's fascinating. And we're and we're just going to break him apart and just dissect him until we either have an idea as to why or what made him the way that he was or – yeah, we haven't even gotten to the monster yet. We've only no. kind of dealt with the child and the the troubles he encountered. You will definitely be surprised. And I, I promise you, you will learn something from this series that you didn't know. I know that everyone's like, oh, Ed Kipper again. I want this to be a very cohesive. I mean, I'll put it out. Like, I've known 99.9% of this, but there's things in here that I didn't realize, didn't know right, about. Right. I didn't know about until just recently with you doing this case mm-hmm. that – even I'm learning, right? So if I'm learning and I'm married to you and I've fucking watched Mindhunters multiple times with you and I've heard you talk about <laughs> Kemper and every time you've fucking reading something on it or listen to this fucking YouTube about it, like I, I've been around some Ed Kemper shit in my life. Yeah, yeah. And I'm learning shit. So I'm just letting I just. He's something else. He's definitely an interesting um, topic. We'll put it that way. Specimen. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's where we'll end here. I know I've kept you here a long time. No, I'm good. I want to keep you on with this one, but I know. But we will see you back here same time next week. Be good to each other. We love you. Bye.